Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Monday, the 5th of October. Uh, it is just almost hard to believe that the year is skating along with at such a pace, but here we are. Uh, a couple of updates to stories that we have been covering. Uh, this, this, I'll put this one in the pray the news category. Wildfires continue in California. They have now burned more than 4 million acres this year. Um, areas facing the latest round of deadly blazes um, are expected to get some much-needed rain, but not until later this week. So let's be praying not only for people who live in the affected region, but let's be praying for those firefighters who are on the front lines of this. And, um, I mean, right now, conditions are still hot and dry and very dangerous. There are new evacuations ordered in Napa County and uh Let's see, I'm reading down the list here. Um, Well, there are a number of fatalities uh, that are being reported as well. Some 16,500 firefighters battling 23 major blazes across the state of California uh, as of last night. Uh, And so let's just be let's be praying for rain uh, and let's be praying for the protection of those who are fighting these fires as well. The air quality in the region is uh, understandably uh, described as poor poor. Um, Okay, then let's also bring you up to date on the conversation that we had with Ben Johnson on Thursday with the expectation that the grand jury testimony tapes were going to be released uh, in the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky. Fifteen hours of audio were released on Friday from what were understood to be closed door proceedings of a Kentucky grand jury um, in the in the investigation there. And I think this is um, an important moment for us to take note of. Um, I guarantee you this is going to influence how I would participate in the future in what I would have understood up to this point to have been closed door conversations. uh, Were I serving on a jury or a grand jury? And so when Ben and I talked about this on Thursday, and you can always go back and grab the audio, you can listen to the podcast of any shows that you might have missed at MyFaithRadio.com on the podcast page or on the Mornings with Carmen page. Just scroll down to the podcast. Ben and I discussed, you know, how this uh, uh, opening of testimony that was understood to have been, conversations that were understood to have been behind not only closed doors, but in a in a setting that we would have all understood to have been safe and confidential. Um, now, you know, what you talk about in a jury room, I would say, is no longer considered um, closed door. It's obviously open door if they're going to release the tapes to the media, which has now happened in this particularly sensitive case. So I just um, I lift this up because I think this is a turning point in terms of the way we as American citizens understand our participation, particularly in uh, in in juries and jury trials. Uh, And then there are several tense situations in the Middle East threatening to boil over uh, one in Iraq 
there was a recent round of rocket attacks allegedly launched by Iran-backed groups. And um, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, here in the United States has threatened a diplomatic pullout from Iraq's capital should this uh, dangerous situation continue to escalate. Lebanon is trying to rebuild its fragile economic and political systems, which have been ravaged not only by conflict, but by tragedy. It's just been, uh, wow, almost two months now that they uh, experienced that horrific blast in Beirut. And there are situations as well. Azerbaijan uh, has ordered Armenian forces out of the country. Um, Hostilities are rising there. We'll have all those conversations with David Aikman in the second hour. But we're going to lead off today. First of all, with my reminder of the question, where in the word are you today? If you need a place to be, go to Romans 8. That's where I am. And then we're going to jump into a conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins about COVID. And obviously uh, today, what leads the news related to COVID is that the president of the United States is is receiving treatments for COVID-19, having disclosed on Friday that he and the first lady uh, both tested positive for uh, for the virus. So Dr. Zach Jenkins up next. We'll be right back. Dr. Zach Jenkins joining us again on this Monday covering COVID headlines. Zach, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so I could just lead off with this Trump and COVID. But let me let me read people in on a few things. According to The Wall Street Journal, the president did not disclose a positive test result uh, via a rapid COVID test on Thursday, um, which would have sort of enabled all of us to have an extra 24 hours uh, to sort of prepare to discuss what's going on. Um, the president briefly departed Walter Reed Medical Center on Sunday evening, riding in an SUV with rolled up windows to wave at supporters gathered outside. Much of the media seems consumed with this little outing. But I'd like to talk with you about um, how severe we think President Trump's case is based on what we know in terms of the uh, treatments he's receiving. So it was disclosed uh, that he is uh, receiving a uh, a steroid treatment. I'm not even going to try to say it. I'm going to let you say it. And then um, also antibody treatments. Um, there was some conversation about uh, him also uh, receiving uh, the one that starts with an R that we talk a lot about. Rem- yeah. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about the one that starts with a D that's a steroid, the one that starts with an R that we've talked a lot about that I can't pronounce either, and then the antibody treatments, and maybe what all of that suggests to you about the president's condition? So... My understanding thus far is the president has received remdesivir, which is the new antiviral that we've been using in COVID. Um, And we know from that the use of that product that what it does is it actually decreases the severity of symptoms while at the same time lessening how long the uh, actual disease lasts. That's at least the thought behind that drug. Dexamethasone, which is a steroid, that's actually something we've seen a direct benefit from in terms of decreasing mortality from the disease as well as improving overall symptoms. So when it comes to, to those two products specifically, um, there, there's more data suggesting that maybe we can try therapy earlier in patients, that that's a debate, but there's not necessarily confirmatory evidence to say people do better. So what I would probably suggest about at least those two things with, with the president is 
it's hard to say whether they at least tried therapy earlier before he progressed to being worse or he was worse enough to receive those products. My guess would be, based on some other things I'm inferring, that he probably is receiving things a little bit earlier mm-hmm. um, just to be really aggressive about approaching this disease. Uh, I do know that there are a lot of things that make make me think that the president at least was definitely sick enough to be hospitalized, but maybe not sick enough to um, maybe have warranted something like a ventilator or anything like that. And that's that's the fact that you know he's kind of up and moving around, but at the same time he was also requiring oxygen. Well, at least while he was at the White House, that that at least we're aware of so far. Um, right. I guess so he's probably had some some requirements to at Walter Reed. Right. And then, I, you know, I, I would just all of the people that are, you know, in sort of his histrionics uh, about the fact that, you know, he took a ride and waved at people. Um, you know, I got to say, in terms of communicating to the world that our president is not on a ventilator, uh, no better way to demonstrate that than to get out and uh, ride around and wave. So for people who, you know, think that maybe it wasn't the greatest idea in terms of in in terms of a demonstration of how closely protected we need to be of people who have uh, the virus and in terms of their ability to infect others, I understand that conversation and I understand why people are, are, are upset. But I would also say in terms of calming fears around the world, um, what what he did in terms of taking a ride in the SUV, you know, around the grounds um is a is a demonstration that he's not on a ventilator and he frankly looks pretty good for a guy who has covid. Yeah, yeah, so at least based on what I'm I'm inferring, I think that he is definitely sick enough to require hospitalization, but I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. call it a severe case. It's probably like a moderate case. Yeah. All right, um hydroxychloroquine has failed as a pre-covid prophylaxis and i have to say if you can use hydroxychloroquine or prophylaxis in scrabble you're pr- you're pretty much going to win <laughs> that's if you allow medical terms in scrabble right um oh do they not is that like a thing oh some people refuse to yeah oh. we make everybody if we're playing everybody you have to use a bible term of some sort well there's a lot of words in the bible so you know anyway that's our geek way <laughs> That's that's our geek way of playing. But anyway, all right. No no medical terms in Scrabble apparently for the medically minded. That's odd. Okay. <laughs> I learn something yeah. every time I talk to you, so that's good. So it's interesting about hydroxychloroquine, though. Um, you know, from what we understand, the president had been taking it prophylactically. Now I I don't know for sure if he was still taking it prophylactically by the time he was infected. Um, but it is pretty pretty telling that the same week that unfortunately he did develop. Um, COVID, there was a study that was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that highlighted uh, sort of the lack of effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic. So that was one of those areas we hadn't had a lot of data about, and we had hoped that maybe we could give people this agent and it could prevent them from coming down with the illness. And uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it's very beneficial there. Mm-hmm. All right, we have to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Zach Jenkins about what people are calling the twin-demic, COVID-19 or the coronavirus, and the flu, the seasonal flu. We're also going to talk about the distribution of new rapid tests and how that might uh, really lead to a paradigm shift for testing here in the United States. So I'm talking with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, and we'll be right back. Give me faith, light, Daniel, in the lion's 
Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, Zach, let's talk about this conversation of, uh, about the twindemic. This is an interesting word. The coronavirus and the seasonal flu. Yeah, so this is actually something I've been somewhat concerned about for several months now. And, and that's this whole idea of what's going to happen if we have COVID layered on top of a pretty bad flu outbreak. We were pretty fortunate last year in the sense that we only had a mild season with the flu. And the, the thought is if we have a more severe season, that may end up really taxing our medical services that we're able to provide right now. Um, there are some, some early estimates that suggest that the flu does go bad. We may start to fill up our ICUs and uh, start to resort to some of those other things we, we talked about very early with COVID with trying to preserve our medical resources. Um, what we can say for certain is that if you look at uh, the CDC, they track what's called excess deaths. And these are deaths from any source, uh, whether it's a motor vehicle accident or whether there's uh, someone who basically dies of a heart attack or COVID or anything like that. And our excess deaths today have definitely been well above the expected average for this time of year. And that, that's been very consistent since March. And so when we think about what might happen with the flu on top of that, again, that's where we become a little bit concerned. You know, the, the terms we come up with are kind of curious, aren't they? Excess deaths. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like there's a there's a perspective conversation probably for Christians to have about uh, about life and death and and. Right. I mean, it's God is the giver of life and the God is the one who ultimately has the power to take it away. And we do our very best as uh, as stewards of our bodies and and stewards of all of the information to which we have access to, you know, do our very best to live uh, to live these lives not only well, but long. Um, But at some point, right, life comes to an end and uh, ashes to ashes and dust to dust from a naturalistic perspective. But um, you know, but from this life to the next in terms of our Christian worldview. And so I just want to um, remind people that, you know, death is real. We all know that. Um, and it's not ultimately avoidable. And even when we think about there being uh, an expected number of deaths in a particular year or in a particular span of time, you know, the reality is only God knows the number of, of our days. And so let's be sure we live this one fully to his glory and uh, ready for the return of his son that he might find us you know, busy doing the things that uh, that he has set before us to do in this particular day. Um, Zach, talk with us about the new rapid tests. Uh, they are apparently going to be widely available here in the United States. How might this change the paradigm in terms of testing uh, here in the U.S.? Well, if we look at testing pretty broadly uh, since COVID started, it's pretty amazing to think that we're doing over 4 million tests per day right now. Wow. When you consider the fact that we were only able to do about a million tests per day maximum with any previous disease that we've dealt with. So we've really rapidly improved our our testing abilities, but that we're still not quite at target uh, when we're thinking about maybe how we should be testing to prevent spread. And so the thought there is that we probably need to multiply that number another threefold. So we're looking at at least 12 million, possibly up to 14 million test that we'd be looking at per day to contain spread. So okay, so can I ask like you can I yeah, can ahead. I ask you a question about that? Uh-huh. So there there seem to be a fair number of people out there who get tested I'll, I'll use the term regularly. 
So, you know, they're they're tested every day or they're certainly tested every few days. And it's because of the environment in which they work or what they're doing. Um, You know, I've had one test and it was back in early June. Um, And so talk with me about how how this is counted. So those people that are getting tested every day, that's in this count. But that seems weird. It's not like four million different people are being tested every day so that the entire population over the course of time is actually being tested. Some people are being tested a lot and other people are not being tested at all. Yeah, yeah. So that's correct. So there are some people that are definitely at higher risk. And so the thought is that maybe daily testing using some of these rapid testing products that are coming out may actually allow for better containment of spread. Do they but still have to stick some... that thing all the way back in their nose? No, like, so is that's that... actually one of the, oh. the big differences here. Yeah. Uh-huh. So because yeah, I'm not doing that every day, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to a job <laughs> where they're sticking that thing down my nose every day. That is painful. Oh, absolutely. I, I like to say like those nasopharyngeal swabs, those are Oof. pretty much a memorable experience. Like you won't absolutely. forget how unfortunate those things are. But uh, the nice thing about these rapid tests is they're really quick. They usually are just like a quick uh, swab of your mouth. And hmm. then the results are available in anywhere from five to 15 minutes, depending wow. on the test that you're using. And so the nice thing there is you don't even necessarily need a medical professional to provide the test. Um, so there, there's actually even talk about could we provide some of these high risk sites like prisons and things like that with some of these testing products that they could just give every day um, and not necessarily have to go through the whole rigmarole of, of using healthcare services. I, I love that idea. I think we should be doing that. That's I'm for I'm for that. Um, all right. So um, one other headline here, unless there's a, a different one you want to cover, has COVID become less dangerous? So that that's actually a really good question. Um, if you look at our overall infection fatality rate, which is basically a de- death from the any kind of infection w- with COVID, so whether it was symptomatic or asymptomatic, it kind of tallies all those up together. And what we see with that number is it has truly gone down since the start of the pandemic. And now it's floating somewhere between uh, 0.3% to 0.5% of people that do get COVID may ultimately pass away. So that that's good in the sense that it has gone down because earlier reports suggested that we were looking at like 5 to 6%, depending on the part of the world you were located in. And there is some variance across countries when we think about how countries are treating patients, how they're caring for their vulnerable population. And so as a result in the U.S., at least we've seen it drop to somewhere between 0.3 and 0.5 percent. Seems low, but if you think about how many people there are in the United States that could contract the illness, there's 330 million. If you take 0.05 percent of that, it's still a very big number, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's a concern that I think we have. Um, what I will say, though, is sometimes I feel we focus a little bit too much on on mortality when we should be thinking about consequences from the disease as well. And I think that there are people that we, we've seen reports of that have symptoms for weeks after the resolution of an infection where they're having trouble going up the stairs. People that have these blood clots and, and they develop things like strokes, which leads to permanent disabilities and things of that nature. So, I mean, to me, there's at least a, a few more things to consider besides mortality. Yeah, absolutely. All of the quality of life issues and uh, yeah. long-term consequences, as you described them. Zach, as always, such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for, um, you know, letting me just like make my list over the course of a week and then just dump it all on you every Monday morning. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you, I do. I just keep my, my Zach COVID list. And so um, it really, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for helping us out in this way. And have a blessed week. Stay safe. Know that you're uh, on our list of those of frontline workers for whom we pray um, consistently. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. We got to take a break and then we'll be right back. Hey, Paul, this is always when okay. um, I want to ask a question about how things work. Did everybody just hear that Greg Laurie knowing God piece yes. or only some people? Yes. Everybody heard that? Everybody okay. should have, yes. Okay, well then I want to pause briefly and make a follow-up comment um, because Greg Laurie uh, is absolutely right. And when I said earlier, when I asked earlier, where in the word are you today? And I shared with you that I'm in Romans chapter 8, the first four verses one of the things that I want to highlight there is uh, is what Greg Laurie just said, and it is about the indwelling presence of Christ in our lives. If you struggle with indwelling sin, and if you're using that as an excuse to live free of sin, then let me just say this. The only power that that anyone has over indwelling sin is an indwelling spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is the spirit indwelling you, Invite the power of the Holy Spirit to drive out whatever indwelling sin it is that you're dealing with today. Because Jesus didn't just die to break the power of sin in death. He died to break the power of sin in life. And so you and I can live as people who are genuinely set free of the power of sin, not only the power of sin in death, but the power of sin in life. You can live free. You can be set free. The question is whether or not the spirit of the living God is the one dwelling within you, because that is the spirit in you that has the power to deal with indwelling sin. So that'll be my follow on to Greg Laurie's excellent point there today in knowing God. All right. Next up, I've got Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about um, the issues related to the campaign and President Trump's uh, COVID diagnosis, what that is doing to uh, the campaign season. We're also going to talk about a number of other headlines at the intersection of faith and political life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's easy to love someone when they agree with you and difficult when they don't. Hi, I'm Mark Grayston with Parenting Today's Teens. Remember those days when your toddler or grade school kid wanted to please you? Those were the days, weren't they? But then something happened. That cute kid became a jumbled up, disagreeable, emotional mess. And all of a sudden, it isn't so easy to love them anymore. If you have a teen or preteen living in your home, I want to remind you that no matter how bad things get, your child needs unconditional love when it's easy and when it's not. If your child feels there's something they could do to lose your love, be very clear right now about how you love her or him without condition. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. He tweets at Carrington AM. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be here. Hope you're all well. Whew, yeah, we're all well. 
I mean, I had a headache last night, but I think it was because I didn't drink enough water. We were out on the river playing and, you know, but yeah, I'm all well. Thank you. I, I had to turn I the heat on this morning. Coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, I had to turn the heat on this morning. It's a little <clears throat> bit of a fall chill, you know, things like that, but all is well, all is well. Hope that is true of you and yours. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, let's jump into the question. Uh, the, the what if question. This is probably the question that leapt to mind more frequently um, than any other. The what if question, not only related to the president and whether or not he survives the coronavirus, because I I'm just one of those people that don't think this is going to kill him. But it did sort of bring this gap in U.S. election law uh, to the fore of the conversation for many, many people. And that's the what if conversation. So let's have the what if conversation about either candidate. At this point in the campaign, should one of them, um, you know, should one of them die? Right. And and actually, even if you don't believe one of them might die from this, and we don't know for sure whether uh, Vice President Biden contracted this either, there is the possibility of it incapacitating them enough or damaging their health enough that they feel they have to step down. And that will, would be just as problematic as if they had passed away as far as what to do next. And uh, what what is typically done from the party level, and that's where you have to start, what would the party that has nominated this person do? <clears throat> the RNC in this case, or the DNC, if, if, Pres- if Vice President Biden got it, would get together and pick a replacement. They would have a vote. And if they got that replacement in in time, they would most likely be accommodated by the states to have the name changed on the ballot. Here's the problem. That's too late. We're, we're past that. Voting. Ballots have already gone out. Mm-hmm. People have already voted. So what would what would happen in this case? The RNC would still pick a replacement, but what uh, what probably would then have to happen is people would probably be asked to vote for the candidate on the ballot with the knowledge that it was going to be for the replacement, the person that was replacing this 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 voter. There was one instance of that kind of happening in a Missouri Senate race back in 2000. And but the problem then comes up is, yes, people vote on the ballot, but the real definitive ending choice of the president constitutionally is the Electoral College. And the kicker here is the Supreme Court just affirmed this summer that you can bind and punish electors for not voting for the person on the ballot that was chosen by the voters. So so what do people on in those states do? What do electors in those states do? And I, I think in, in, in a sane atmosphere, what would happen is – the states would release their electors or rebind them to vote for someone else in an emergency session, and they would do so. But I think at that point, you're given how litigious and partisan we are, we may have lawsuits arguing that that contradicts what the law was doing beforehand. So the cleanest is the uh, what I just laid out. But I think that given our partisan rancor, it could get very messy uh, because of people being – Want, not wanting the other side to win. So that's that's at least based on the, the election laws it is. I think that's the best case scenario if that happens. All right. Can we have a somewhat academic conversation uh, about that last point? Um, and that is the 
I just don't want that other person to win or I don't want that other side to win. Um, can can we just have a little can we have a conversation about preparing ourselves for the possibility that our guy does not win? Whichever that side be... we're on, could we just have that? If you were talking to students today and and you were wanting them to behave appropriately if their guy doesn't win, whoever their guy is, what kind of conversation would you be having with them? I don't know if this is academic or therapeutic that mm, okay. we need to actually be having, <laughs> but I'll try my best. And, and I, what I would say is twofold. A lot of my stu- I, I would tell my students that we still have the political process, that the Constitution is bigger than any political party, and that we have set up a system where there is always another election that— I think that we have been saying that each election is the most important in everyone's lifetime long enough that maybe that might be even overblown this time, even though I I agree that it's an important election, and that we should trust the Constitution to be bigger than a party and commit ourselves to making it bigger than a party. But then what I'd also touch on that I think listeners hopefully here can attach to and that many of my students have can given their 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 commitments faith-wise is to say that God is the sovereign of history and that God is the ultimate sovereign of politics, of life, of all existence and that if we really do trust in his providence that he is bringing history to a culmination. And that doesn't mean that things might not be painful now, that they might not be troubling, but that true trust in that will say that he will bring his kingdom to bear, he will renew all things, and that we can trust in that even when life doesn't go the way we want, even when things are very hard, and that that's something that even if everything else fails, we have to fall and and rely on. So those would be the two responses I'd give. I guess one political as a citizen of earth and the other as a citizen of heaven. I was reminded in a conversation yesterday that Christians uh, can have and do uh, live in Christ by faith under all kinds of systems of governance and certainly under um, various and sundry expressions of particular governments and so if if Christians can live in Christ as Christians by faith in China, um, then Christians ought to be able to live in Christ by faith under whoever it is that wins in a particular uh, presidential election cycle in the greatest democracy to have ever been created here in the United States of America. Like we ought not use whoever, whatever happens in the election process, we ought not use it as an excuse to behave badly as Christians. Yeah, Christ is building his kingdom regardless. And as someone who teaches politics, studies politics, I don't want to undermine the importance of the world God has created and our role in it and how essential the a political life is, because it's our communal life together with other human beings created in the image of God. That said, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God is really a comforting doctrine to me, regardless of who wins. And I think that we can keep both mentalities alive and together at the same time. This is important. This is something God has ordained for us to do together in life. And God will bring about his kingdom, and we don't need to sin 
thinking sin because of the ultimate sin of not believing God is the author of history. All right, uh, Dr. Adam Carrington and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, some of the headlines from last week uh, related to the COVID stimulus, um, a statement made or maybe not made by the president of the United States during the debate last week um, on a group called the Proud Boys. I don't even know if group's the right word. Um, And then we're also going to talk about what's driving the decision on who evangelicals, and there we're going to use a small e, will be voting for. That's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, comment on uh, the House, U.S. House passing the COVID stimulus, but, you know, no deal yet uh, with the White House. Yes, this this is a combination. I think obviously there's some politics being played between the two, but I think what's also interesting is I think there are some principal disagreements between them where the the House Democrats want something much more extensive and comprehensive and the White House and the Republicans, I think even more Republicans in Congress, have really been wanting to limit what's being the, the stimulus relief more because they they don't want a new normal. And I think this is a, a legitimate debate between them where House Democrats are emphasizing the desperation of people, the fact that a lot of the original stimulus is running out. And I think the Republicans are saying we don't want a new normal as far as the degree to which government is involved in our lives. We want to minimize the massive intrusion of government, both economically and just rules and regulations for life to just the coronavirus. And I think while there is the political element, there is trying to maximize both sides electorally, I think underneath there is that principal debate about the role and scope of government in human life that is is playing out as well in the size of the package and the extent of it. And we'll have to see. The president just upped, uh, allegedly, the amount of money that he said his side should be willing to spend. So I wouldn't put it out of out of reach, even with a partisan rancor in an election season, that there might be some minimum deal within the next couple of weeks. I expect that. I expect a deal within the next couple of weeks. So uh, so we'll see. Um, I concur with you on all those points. Um, Let's talk about a moment that really uh, is probably the one moment from the first presidential debate that got the most traction and um, and maybe follow on conversation. And that was a question posed to the president um, about denouncing uh, white supremacy and groups who are supremacist in their uh, not only in their outlook, but in their in their approach. So the Proud Boys um, came into into view. First of all, for those who are listening who have no idea who or what that is, um, help us understand that. And then how is this tied to the larger conversation we're having as a culture related to race? Yes. And the Proud Boys I wouldn't equate them with the KKK, given their very long and violent history, but a similar ideology that distinguishes people on the basis of race or ethnicity and sees themselves as superior because of that and wants to act in life and policy and other things related to it. 
and what was ha- what happened was the president was pushed by moderator Chris Wallace during the debate to elaborate on did he contend white supremacists did he condemn groups like the proud boys and he told them to stand by and stand down that was interpreted by the proud boys themselves as stand by and be ready for when i call on you so they were very happy about that i i tend to think that two things one that i uh, i'll try to defend the president a little bit on the other i i think i'll try to criticize him on this i think that to some degree he didn't have an answer prepared for this and was meaning it more negatively than it came across that he genuinely was trying to say if you're a a supremacist group to stop do not cease and desist stop doing these things at the same time i'm baffled that the president after charlottesville what happened there after many of the ways he's been attacked and critiqued for things he said why he does always why he still seems to struggle with this question when it comes up why he doesn't now have a canned direct crisp response that denounces and decries it seems baffling it's either a problem of uh, of preparation or a problem of the uh, ability to fully denounce people that support him uh, you know and by the way i don't think that he himself harbors many of these views but it, it seems to be a problem one way or another i think probably a preparation itself but i don't think it was meant the way that it was taken by many in the media would be my read uh i concur um i think there's a simple I actually think there's a simple answer to the question, and it is it is to um, echo what the Declaration of Independence says and then to be sure that that is interpreted as meaning all men. Like, right? I think you can just reiterate that all men are created equal, um, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I think it's an opportunity to talk on the world stage about the creator, about unalienable rights, and about the uh, the basic equality, inherent equality of all people, um, you know, at creation. Uh, as a Christian, I would go so far as to say equal at the at the foot of the cross, and ultimately equal for those who are going to live forever in the kingdom. Um, I I think it's an, a wide open door of opportunity to actually educate not only the American public but the world um, on on the theology of humanity, what it is, what it means to be a human being, and what it means to treat one another as human beings equally made in the image of God, regardless of those things which differentiate us. And I think that allows you not only to be a, a, a show that Christian worldview and show that humanity, I think it allows something that 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 has been lacking, which is to clearly show yourself to be the president of the United States, not just the leader of a party or a part of a party. Uh, president Biden has tried to do this, or Vice President Biden has tried to do this on several occasions, but I think this would have been a home run instance, like you said, to say, yes, I have my own policy views, I disagree with my opponents, I'm part of the Republican Party, but I'm also the president of all Americans, 
and all Americans are human beings, and this is what binds us not just as citizens, this declaration of our independence, but that that declaration also shows how we're bound together as human beings. And I think it would be teed up, really, to, to use the golf metaphor, for someone to make that argument and make it, as you said, a kind of teachable moment that I think would also serve him personally as far as his election prospects. This really would be a win-win. It would be good in the objective sense and good in the subjective sense. All right. Um, I don't know that in a minute we can cover what's driving the decisions on uh, small evangelicals and how we'll vote, but I'll give you a minute to, to answer. Right. There's a lot of data out there that self-described evangelicals are for a long time have been overwhelmingly Republican and are overwhelmingly voting for President Trump. There has been some show of a racial divide on that, which shows that to some degree culture dictates to our theology maybe more than it should, and I mean that from both sides. But I think ultimately what you're seeing is there is a perception and there's evidence to support it that Christians are on the defensive, that they need help, they need support, and President Trump has done, I think, electorally a better job, and his his advisors of saying he's on the side of defending religious liberty, appointing pro-life justices to the Supreme Court, and while there are certainly questions about his, his character and other things that people admit, um, I think that ultimately— things we've talked about before, this question of self-defense explains a lot of why you see the voting patterns you do. All right, we got to leave it right there. Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, thank you so much for your contribution to the conversation. Uh, yeah, you guys can uh, can at me. Uh, the, uh, the number where you can text your conversational responses is 877-933-2484. Just be sure you've listened to the whole conversation before you, um, well, throw those verbal grenades. All right, uh, Adam, thank you as always so much. Appreciate your being with us. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, encouraging you uh, to be in the Word of God today. Before you are out there in the world that God so loves, let's be sure that we are prepared to temper our conversations and our comments toward one another uh, with grace and love. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.